Hello and welcome to Maybe Then Historian, the podcast chronicling one grad student's perennial quest to not play video games all day and instead study for his comprehensive exams. And uh, over the next couple days, I'm going to be going over some big ideas that I think I've drawn from my readings in preparation for my orals. Now, I thought that this would actually be a bit easier than the whole three books a day, never stop a podcast a day sort of schedule that I have been um, pushing myself through. Uh, But even though I don't have to get through as many books, it's actually really tiring because I now have to think through these really big problems and kind of consolidate my answers in ways that convince me enough that I remember them so that when I'm asked these questions in the exam, I can spout them off of my, you know, straight out of my brain. Um, And it's tiring. I slept really hard last night. I had weird dreams all about organizational sociology. Uh, I sleep-talked to my girlfriend, berating her about milkshakes, and that she kept on drinking milkshakes in the bed, and that is not sexual. That's because I uh, think I was obsessing over milkshakes, um, and it's been a, a slow start to the morning. Today, what I'm going to be talking about is I will be talking about mechanisms that we can get from organizational sociology that can help us do historical work. And so my big idea is that I am curious about how organizations and individuals co-create one another over time. In my view, when we look at history, what we really are looking at are, uh, you know, patterns of behavior between people who make up larger groups of people, and then those larger groups of people making up the smaller groups of people. Um, Think about your own biography. You go to school where you're taught particular things, then you go off and you work in a business where you are uh, asked to do particular sets of activities, then then you meet people in social life. Uh, In every single one of these groups of people, you both create the group by participating in it, by, uh, you know, making decisions about what the group does, by acting as an agent of that group, and, you know, actually doing the things that the group wants. But also, you were created by the group. You are taught things by your family, by your school. You are uh, pushed into particular habits of thought by the places that you work. You are um, you do particular kinds of things in your social life to appeal to your friends and to the people who you want to be impressed with you. Keeping this uh, feedback loop of organizations and individuals in mind can help us look at mechanisms for how these change historically. And we do this, I think, because it helps us look at important ways that people are shaped over time without falling prey to the whole structure agency you know, debate that everybody perennially always has about what actually matters, whether everything that happens in our heads is the result of the superstructure of economic relations, or uh, whether, you know, everything that we do is just the product of genius people. So I'm going to uh, look at these mechanisms from two perspectives. I'm going to organize them in terms of their uh, scope. Uh, I'm going to look at what I call middle-down processes to distinguish from top-down. I don't care about big, gigantic processes. I'm looking at meso-processes, things in the middle. And then I'm going to look at uh, bottom-to-middle. Not, again, uh, uh, bottom-up, but micro-to-meso. And 
when I'm going through these, even though I've, I've, I've separated them out by scale, I want to just make clear that I don't think that they operate independently. I think that they're always interacting, these two levels of micro and meso. Uh, I'm going to follow Paget and Powell in this little uh, helpful quip, which is probably about the most memorable thing you're going to hear from organizational sociology. In the short term, actors create relations. In the long term, relations create actors. Uh, before I jump into it, I also just want to note that there is another way that I could present this kind of material, and that's through uh, my advisor Heather Haveman's uh, uh, typology of splitting up organizational sociology into those lo that look at demography, uh, those that look at cognition, and those that look at power. Uh, we might call these organizational ecology, um, cultural studies, or uh, network and resource dependence studies. So let's first look at the middle, middle down, at the meso to micro level. Um, one of the big ways that we can do this is by looking at organizations as you know operating not just isolated, but amongst a bunch of other organizations in a field. Um, this is what's called organizational ecology. We understand how organizations work by looking at their behavior as the result of long-term changes to the populations of other uh, organizations. We study organizations the same way that an ecologist studies a population of animals in a particular ecological niche. We look at how animals are born, how they die, how their populations grow and shrink, how they reproduce, and how they change. And the idea of how this is driven is similar to how the, how the idea of ecological change is driven. Uh, organizations like animals need particular resources and compete for them and specialize in getting those resources from particular kinds of niches. Another perspective of this middle-down approach uh, helps us look at a peculiar thing about organizations is that they don't seem to change very much over time. Although the fields of organizations do change, individual organizations have a certain inertia to them. One of the strongest uh, perspectives of this is Alfred Stinchcomb's imprinting hypothesis. He argues that organizations are constrained by the social and technological limits present at the times of their founding and that this is really important as these organizations continue further down across their lifetimes because they can't change a ton after they're founded. So for example, uh, you can look at organizations that were founded during railway ages and during uh, highway ages and show that they have different ways of communicating within the organization even up into the present day because of the different ways of communicating at the time of their founding. The reasons for this inertia are complex, but they mostly include the fact that organizations search for stability over time. Um, and this perspective has been elaborated historically. Um, we've actually looked at the historical foundations between founders and key stakeholders to see that it's not simply 
a fact of a genius individual founder who selects from an available you know set of cultural schema but rather that the actual bit of founding is a political action that's constrained by culture by um, available resources and stuff like that furthermore by looking at this historically we realize that there is a another key moment in the founding of organizations um, of an organizational imprinting it's not only that moment that the organization gets made, but it's also the crucial point when the organization reconstitutes itself in the second generation. It's this shift from uh, an organization being nude, an organization being institutionalized or you know settled, that sets a lot of its behavior down. You can think of this, for example, in um, what I like to call the evangelist effect. So the first generation of a lot of religious movements have charismatic, amazing individuals at their center who create new movements, but might not necessarily have very large followings. Those religions that really kick off, however, have second generation evangelizers who actually build the institutions that then spread the religion. We have Joseph Smith, in the case of the Mormons, who founds the religion and then has the religion institutionalized and developed through the organizational abilities of Brigham Young. Same thing with L. Ron Hubbard, uh, the founder of Scientology, and David Muscavy, the organizational genius who actually turned it into a worldwide phenomenon. And from this perspective, we can also see key failures in organizational imprinting. Much is discussed, for example, in 18th century British history about the political reign of Robert Walpole, the first prime minister who came into power in um, 1720 and lasted until the 1740s. He created a novel form of government that you know, allowed a really, really broad-based agreement about the key problems of British political life through not just, you know, philosophical agreement, but also tons and tons of bribes and preferences. This has been touted as an incredibly stable political system. Um, he lasted, he's still the longest running prime minister in British history. Uh, the, one of the key books about this uh, by Plum is called The Origins of Political Stability. But if we look at this from a long-term perspective, Walpole did not create a successful organization because after he gave up the prime ministership, he was, his successors were by and large unable to reproduce his success for many years. The ministries were uncertain, they lasted for very short periods of time, and it was only uh, until you got a strong prime minister in later years, I, I can't remember the prime ministers off the top of my head because I'm a bad British historian, but it, it, the prime minister uh, system only worked when you had particular kinds of personalities at their head. This is a failure of imprinting. It wasn't, for example, until I think uh, the Great Reform Act in 1832 or even the Second Reform Act in 1867 when you get an organizational form uh, in British politics that is far more stable. And it's stable because it doesn't rely on individuals and individual networks. It relies on organizations that reproduce themselves over and over again in time. Another big question and perspective that we get from this meso to micro uh, uh, approach is um, the problem of isomorphism. 
So when we look at organizations in this organizational ecology perspective, we notice that there's lots of them. They look uh, very different. There seems to be a great variety of them. However, this perspective argues something else. It says that the big problem that we have to look at is why do organizations look so similar? Why are they isomorphic in our jargon? Now, there is an empirical question here. How are organizations the same and how are they different? My quick answer to it is that organizations are uh, often very different in their goals, in their specializations, um, in their attitudes, but often they're really, really similar in their organizational structures, in their ideas of particular roles, in their bureaucracy, in their org charts. Anyway, so neo-institutionalists uh, who are people who argue that to look at economic behavior, you don't need to look at, you know, rational uh, uh, trucking and bartering, but instead need to look at the institutions that this rational behavior are based on, look at isomorphism. The problem of the fact that when organizational fields become mature, they look increasingly similar to one another. Uh, they've identified three big reasons for this, uh, mimesis, uh, norms, and coercion. So the idea is, it, we'll take each one in turn. Organizational mimesis is, let's say that you're a new organization and you are seeking to enter into a field of organizations. You're setting up a restaurant and you want to be like a restaurant. Well, there's lots of decisions you have to make about what your organization looks like, and often you will copy the existing organizations out there. Uh, you might see this on the level of specialization. Thai restaurants are cool, so I will be a Thai restaurant. But you'll also see it in the way that organizations work, that you have waiters and waitresses who work mostly for tips, uh, that you have the kitchen separated from the staff. All of these things are mimetic. Another uh, process is through norms, through unspoken uh, agreements about how people think that things should go. Uh, one norm in our restaurant example, and if I do this in the exam, I really need to think of a historical example, not a, you know, common sense everyday example. Uh, with norms of restaurant eating, we know that when we go into a restaurant, we don't do our own dishes. We know that there are some restaurants in which you take your food to the table and other restaurants in which you don't. You know that there's some restaurants where you pay up front and others that you pay at the end of the meal. These norms are hard baked and they're really hard to shift. The final one is coercion, and that's probably the most obvious one. Um, one uh, uh, example from our uh, 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 restaurant example is that there might be particular agreements amongst restaurants to pay waiters and waitresses in a certain way. Uh, for example, there might be agreements to pool tips. And uh, people who resist that, uh, organizations that resist that, who refuse to go along with a particular set of behaviors might be punished by other organizations. There also might be punishment from, for example, the state. Uh, we all assume that restaurants should be kept clean and we rely on that assumption on the fact that the state investigates restaurants and punishes people who do not keep up a particular standard of cleanliness. Central to this is the idea that the way that organizations work is not due to grim efficiency. 
They're not simply machines for making good economic decisions, but rather that they rest on the way that people actually think, the information actually available to them, the ideas that they're actually able to have, and the constraints from outside actors that actually press upon them. This is not an economic view of the world. This is a world of constrained animalistic actors that sometimes don't know what they're doing. One way that we can see this is through um, the idea of institutionalization. Um, and this is the idea that one of the reasons why this, these kinds of, of, of structures perpetuate themselves is that they become institutionalized. We treat them as the unspoken assumptions about life that, that should happen. From this perspective, a lot of what happens in organizations in Meyer and Rowan's uh, uh, great phrase is myth and ceremony. The ways that we're supposed to act are kind of ceremonially. We do them just to say, I am acting in the particular way that people are meant to act in this organization. And if you don't think that this is true at all, well, think of all of the myth and ceremony that goes into business life. Uh, business people have particular outfits that they wear. Often, I would say, ceremonial outfits. The three-piece suit, the suit and tie, the black jacket and black pants and black tie. Uh, in the early stages of the... Uh, uh, consulting industry, for example, consultants were known as people who were always incredibly formally dressed because it represented their uh, outsider nature in the companies that they were consulting for. They were always the well-kempt, studied, perf perfect, and rational outsiders, and they showed this through their probity towards dress. Um, think of how badly you would look upon somebody emotionally if they came into a big job interview in jorts. Now, the second set of uh, processes that I'm looking on are what I call uh, bottom to middle or micro to mesal. The first one I want to look at is uh, at the very, very bottom level. So I want to explain how I see organizations changing and developing. One of the important things about organizations is uh, the idea of autocatalysis. I take this from uh, Paget and Powell. Their view of organizations is deeply influenced by biochemical understandings of organisms. So when you think of what an organism is like on an atomistic level, it's this structure that manages to interact with its environment in a way that allows it to reproduce its own structure. So you yourself are just this massive colony of cells, and what those cells do often is that they breathe in air and drink water and eat food, and all of those atoms get broken down and they get rearranged to make new cells to replace those cells that die. And similarly, a lot of what we do in the long terms of our lives is that we find other gigantic colonies of cells and we mate with them to create new colonies of cells that are slightly different from us that participate in the larger ecology of large colonies of cells that some of them survive to reproduce and others of them die. But important here is the idea that at the very, very center of life is the constant recreation of the networks of cells that make up the colonies that we call organisms. And so looking at organizations from an autocatalytic perspective allows us to understand that a ton of change 
comes from the process of replacing um, and creating particular elements of the systems. That organizations like organisms are autocatalytic. If they continue, if they're organizations in any sense of the word, they will reproduce themselves by replacing particular members when they die or move away, um, by growing in particular kinds of ways that you know keep their identities intact. Um, but the the onus of this is that we can understand them by looking at how these unstable and changing relationships between the you know constant reproduction of structure actually take place. So key to this is a second perspective that sees organizations not simply as a field of other organizations, but as a layer cake connected by particular individuals. So imagine your own life. You are a member of a lot of different organizations, a lot of different autocatalytic networks all at the same time. And frankly, your role in each of these autocatalytic networks is not necessarily uh, jibing with your other roles in these autocatalytic networks. So you are a member of a family, you are a member of a household, you are a member of a business organization, a social organization, and your roles in these might clash, for example, and they do often clash. There's always the tension between um, the pull of family, friends, business, ambition, religion, and individuals need to sort this out. However, if we look deeply at this, we can see that these individuals' uh, uh, participation in multiple overlapping networks gives us ways that patterns can shift from network to network and change in new ways. Uh, a great example of this is the Weberian Protestant ethic. The idea is, is that uh, Protestant sects develop these particular kinds of uh, attitude towards the world and particular kinds of behavior that, when ported to the other set of autocatalytic networks of business, are incredibly successful in ways that nobody could predict. Uh, Paget and Powell called this network folding. It's not recombinations of particular ideas. It are it's two different you know points of two different networks coming together and, and meshing all of these complicated uh, uh, connections together. And why this is important is that it lets us look at individuals uh, and their interactions and see. Uh, rigorously how they, they, they produce higher order effects. We don't go into these things and we go, okay, we're going to be looking for capitalism. Instead, we look at how the organizations actually work and then uh, posit how they lead to particular kinds of long-term mechanisms happening. Um, Paget and Powell have lots of great examples of this. Um, they, for example, explain the structure of the Dutch stock market as coming from an autocatalytic process of network folding where ideas of uh, Calvinist sectarian uh, church organization are uh, ported into government and then exported into finance. It's all very complicated and I'm not going to actually be able to recap the entire argument, but it's it's fascinating stuff. They have other things too about, uh, they have rich, rich examples. Um, another way that we might see um, bottom uh, to middle 
uh, patterns is through ideas of resource dependence and networks. Uh, here's where power comes in. The idea here is that when we're looking at the individuals who make up organizations, we have to remember that they are um, always constituted by social relations, that there's a lot of power going on, that some of these individuals have uh, larger social capital, better positions in networks, more resources, information asymmetry, and so on, and that these uh, can explain much, if not all, of the patterns of organizational life that we want to explain. Um, a great example of a resource dependence perspective on um, topics of historical import are Kanan Hopkins' idea about uh, gentlemanly capitalism. They explain the spread of capitalism um, and colonization by arguing that, look, um, the real benefits of uh, colonization were that they helped small numbers of politically central men in the square mile of London get uh, good opportunities for investments. It's the interests of these people, not the big system of the whole, that the system is reproduced for. Um, another way that we can look at this is through my own work. Uh, I argue uh, in these podcasts and hopefully in my exams that one of the big moments of the development of civil society in the 18th and 19th century is that civil society is gendered male, which creates a lot of negative effects because civil society produces social capital. It's incredibly important for the development of modern ideas, of individual flexibility, uh, of modern freedom, but because of particular contingent uh, 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 factors, namely the, the marriage market, women are shut out of the civil society. This we can see from a resource dependence uh, perspective as a network closure, uh, as a, uh, a process by which people are not allowed into networks and so are not allowed to uh, participate in broader phenomena. Thanks very much for listening to this very theoretical episode of Making of a Historian. Uh, if you like the show, rate and review us on iTunes, share us on social media, uh, tweet at me at, at MackieTeacher, M-A-C-K-I-E-T-E-H-C-E-R. Uh, you can t tweet me a question and uh, I will answer it on uh, this podcast. Um, thanks very much to Jonathan Lear for the music and Duncan Barton for the image. Uh, this afternoon we'll be back for our final episode on organizational sociology maybe ever, uh, where I will be talking about um, the combination of, of history and sociology, how history can help sociology, how sociology can help history, uh, and maybe I will answer the age-old question that my advisors always ask themselves, is Brendan Mackey a social scientist or is he a humanist?